This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Hemant Mehta for the Friendly Atheist Podcast. Jessica and I will be back to discuss news stories next week. If you like what you're listening to, please go to patreon.com slash friendly atheist podcast to support the show. I'm really excited for you to hear this interview I recently conducted with Dr. Katie Gadini. She is a sociologist at the Social Research Institute, University College London, and a research associate at the University of Johannesburg Department of Sociology. She recently released her debut book, The Struggle to Stay, Why Single Evangelical Women Are Leaving the Church, which is based on over four years of in-depth ethnographic research with single evangelical women in the U.S. and the U.K., Dr. Gadini and I talked about purity culture, the mixed messages sent to Christian women, and whether their churches often do more harm than good. Thank you so much for joining me. Before we get into the book itself, can you give us a little background about yourself and how you got interested in this topic? Yeah, so I grew up in a conservative evangelical community in the U.S. My dad was a pastor. There are three other pastors in my family. So it was a really religious environment. Um, I went to Christian school all the way through university, and I left evangelicalism in my 20s, so about a decade ago, and was really interested to explore more on a personal level, why had I left the faith? And conversely, why do other people stay in it, especially women, and especially women that have grievances or critiques or oppositions to a lot of things of church life, and yet they continue to stay in the church. So it was really a personal question driving this research, um, and it was very much a personal piece of work as well. So the premise of your book, then, is that single Christian women, specifically, are leaving the church faster than ever before. Are they leaving Christianity, or are they just leaving their churches and finding a new community of sorts? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's something I try to trouble in the book is this idea of leaving versus staying in a church or staying in a religion in general. So I found a variety of reactions and let's say a variety of versions of leaving. So one version is leaving the faith altogether, no longer identifying as a Christian, um, identifying as agnostic or atheist. Another version is no longer participating in religious practices such as church life, but still identifying as Christian or still maintaining a relationship um, with God. And then there's a version of the person who just leaves the big church that they're part of and goes to maybe a smaller church or goes infrequently or has a less, let's say, devout practice. So there are all different ways of kind of measuring leaving. And it's not a one-size-fits-all by any means. Um, But there are definitely women I've met throughout the course of this study that no longer identify with any religion and definitely distance themselves from Christianity. Is it a—I know this is a general question, and it's vague, and it's totally unfair. But when they leave their churches, especially those bigger megachurches, those kinds of settings, I mean, is that a good thing for them to do, or is it— 
you know, just depends on which type of church they're leaving. Like, what if it's a bad thing? What is it that they're missing out on that mm. is so that makes it so hard for them to leave sometimes? Yeah, well, I mean, I definitely think if women, if people in general, aren't experiencing inclusion and value in a church community, then it is a positive thing to leave that community. I was asked recently to write an article on encouraging single women to stay in the church, even if they have grievances. And I can't write that article because I don't believe that. (laughs) Um, I think in a lot of cases, it makes sense for women, especially women who have experienced sexual misconduct in the church um, and in forms of discrimination, whether it's racial discrimination, class discrimination, compounded with gender discrimination, the safest and healthiest thing to do is to leave um, the church community. That church, and and sometimes churches in general, I've spoken to participants who have PTSD-type reactions when they step foot into a church now because of some of the the wrongs that, that were committed against them from being in the church. So certainly the healthiest thing for them is to not be part of any sort of church establishment or organized religion uh, for this moment. How do they find out? How do they learn? Uh, You know, a lot of the things you wrote about, a lot of the things that are driving some of these women to leave their churches, um, I would argue these are pretty liberal ideas, feminist ideas, the idea Mm of uh, ownership over your body, sexual misconduct, how to react to that. And like, I feel you certainly, I feel even I'm aware of those issues now, certainly. But part of that is I exist in like left-wing circles. I see that rhetoric all the time. But when you're inside like an evangelical megachurch, and part of me thinks like, well, those are bubbles. It's really hard to get information. That's not what the church wants you to hear. When these women are that you talk to are leaving their churches, where are they figuring out? When are they figuring out that something is wrong inside my community? Are they getting this from like secular outlets? Are they talking to women within the church and realizing something is wrong? Where are they learning uh, to have these opinions? Yeah, I think both and all of the above. Um, An interesting thing that's happened is now with the advent and the movement of Me Too, sexual misconduct has been put on the broader stage, you can say, in a whole new way. So consciousness around consent, around what is sexual misconduct, on what is uh, sexual and gender dynamics, how are they intricately played out, has become much more common knowledge. And this has also, of course, become more in the consciousness of evangelical women. So there's been a huge shift that's happened, you know, since the Me Too era began of evangelical women realizing, hey, I didn't have the language for what happened to me in the church. I knew it wasn't right. It didn't feel right in my body. It didn't feel right to me cognitively. And now I have the language for why it didn't feel right. So movements like that, of course, do touch into even closed off religious communities. There's also, you know, most of the evangelical women I met are still to some level integrated with mainstream society. So it could be through a job. It could be their uh, family of origin is still non-religious. It could be a master's program or an undergrad program that they did. They're still touching up against secular culture. Um, so those ideas are often pushed away, you know, ideas around, um, let's say, progressive views towards LGBTQ people, for example. But in some instances, that exposure does permeate. Let's talk about 
dating within those uh, mostly evangelical bubbles. Um, when younger Christian women date, and I think, uh, I hope it's not personal, I think you had said in the book you had dated guys before you met your partner now. Is there an opportunity to just get to know someone and, and learn about yourself in the process? Or is it still today in a lot of those circles always about courtship, always about it's geared toward marriage from the moment you decide to go out with someone? Like, I'm wondering, because I didn't grow up in these circles, I know that to some extent used to be the case. But because people are talking about these things now, because of uh, Joshua Harris, who I've talked about before on on this podcast, like, has that changed at all? Or is it still kind of geared uh, to that traditional uh, sense? So it's a mixture of both. Heterosexual marriage is still the ideal in evangelical and Protestant circles. That is what young people are meant to aspire to, especially women. At the same time, a lot of more secular dating practices, such as dating apps or setting friends up or having these sorts of dating meals where you'll go to someone's house and there's a bunch of single people, everyone's brought a single friend and you're meant to meet someone else at the, at the dinner. Those types of practices have also been enfolded into evangelical dating culture. So you have this interesting Um, sort of paradox going on at the same time where you're supposed to adhere to these conservative dating practices, such as no sex before marriage, such as moving towards marriage quickly, um, such as dating with intention or with purpose in a heterosexual framework. At the same time, as you have more popular, secular forms of dating that are also proliferating. So the combination is really interesting, and it means that dating culture in evangelical spaces is even more fraught than it was before. I mean, when I grew up, I read Joshua Harris, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. There was a lot clearer sense of kind of this is what's right and this is what's wrong. Whereas I think now those lines are even blurrier and you have very conservative values at the same time as you have very modern dating practices. And the collision of the two, plus when you add in the fact that there is more women than men in churches, and you have people marrying later, especially in urban centers, means that the whole dating realm and sexuality in general is incredibly fraught. This is something that surprised me uh, in your book. I was I was honestly surprised to see that many of the women you spoke to, the type of women who grew up taking abstinence pledges, who remained single for whatever the reason, they often found exceptions to the no sex rule while still technically not having like <laughs> penetrative sex. And I, I part of me wondered, like, they know what they're doing. They know <laughs> that seems to be violating at least the substance of the promise mm. they're making. Um, and like, listen, I don't judge. I don't care. But the rule is abstinence. The rule is not everything but penetration. So, like, Mm. how do they reconcile that within their faith? Because I I imagine, like, they're only doing all this because they want to honor their faith. And so, like, I was wondering, how do you feel like they reconcile doing whatever feels within the like boundaries of the law, but clearly Mm -hmm. you are, you're breaking the rule you signed up for. I think a lot of people genuinely are able to rationalize the sexual practices that they're partaking in as being legitimate and as being still within the no sex before marriage teaching. It's, you know, I tell a story in the book about um, a woman who had 
practiced, you know, what's tongue in cheek called um, just one pump with, with many different men and, you know, J-O-P with many different men. And then when it came time to get married, she was very distressed about the, the prospect of intercourse. She was reading books on it. What is it? How to do it? Felt very nervous about it. You know, there was a big performance around her nerves around it. So in her mind, she genuinely identified and, and, and viewed herself as a virgin um, and viewed the practices actually that she had partaken in as not being sex. So it's, uh, it, it's interesting, you know, I see this happen a lot with alcohol as well, that, you know, evangelicals will say you can get tipsy, but you can't get drunk. And the line between the two, you know, to an outsider might seem, well, you're drunk, you know, the way you're behaving, the amount of alcohol you've consumed, but in their, in certain people's mind for them, it's no, I really am staying in the, in the realm of tipsy because tipsy is permissible. So it's amazing kind of what you can do to tell yourself, um, that you are obeying a certain teaching or, or edict when it matters so much. So there's too much to lose by disobeying it. Um, and you're willing to rationalize as much as you can. And they don't think they're being hypocritical about any of that. I think a lot of times, no, there are certain instances, you know, where women did transgress sexually. They identified that as a transgression. They felt tremendous amounts of guilt and shame. And that was really something they had to wrestle with. There are also a lot of women who don't and, and, you know, evangelical men that I've met as well, anecdotally, who are able to see the sexual practices that they're partaking in or the dating practices as being still permissible and finding a loophole. Mm -hmm. As, as people have joked about in many ways in secular culture too. Um, let me ask. Yeah. I mean, even the idea, sorry, just even the idea, you know, of another woman I met who could only have intercourse on special occasions and that was seen as permissible or, you know, anal sex being okay, but not vaginal sex or using sex toys as being okay. And still calling yourself a virgin. There's so many variations and it it really becomes quite complex and quite um, bespoke and personalized. So the thing, I mean, listen, I know there are a million jokes to make about that. However, I mean, where are they getting those specific rules from? Because obviously that's not biblical. It's not like Jesus talked about sex toys. So the question is, where are they deciding? Where are they figuring out like sex toys are fine, but this is not, or this type of sex is okay. That one's not where is that just a cultural thing in their circles? Like I talked to my friend, she did this. She seems fine. So I can do that. Or is it something else? So it's not coming top down. It's not coming from pastors. It's not coming from books or or any sort of um, evangelical leadership. That's very much happening on the horizontal plane within social circles. And it really varies by region. And that's something that I found super interesting is practices that might happen in one friendship group in the UK would be different than, than practices in another friendship group in, let's say, California or New York. Um, so these are really social interpretations. Wait, Dive into those differences. I'm so curious. Uh, Well, I heard, you know, I've met women in the South, the U.S. South, who um, would be more on the uh, just the tip, JTT, whereas Mm -hmm. the just one pump, I noticed more on West Coast of the U.S., in the UK, I didn't notice any of those two practices, but instead found these sort of um, sex toy special occasion variances. So I think these are, you know, religion is so socially inflected and so culturally inflected. And I think it bears out with the topic of sexuality. That's 
fascinating. I want to see that. Like, I want to see the map, a map. somewhere. Yeah, I'll right. Create a map. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, let's talk about. You spoke with the pressure that this puts on so many women to get married within the church and stuff. What happens to women in the church? And by church, I mean mostly non-denominational, evangelical. What happens to women as they enter their 30s and they're still single? Like, what happens in their minds? Like, they want to find good Christian men. Their options, and I I don't want to mean this pejoratively, but like, their options appear to be dwindling in their minds. So what goes on in their mindset at that point? So the options are absolutely dwindling. This is not just in their minds. It's If you look at it statistically, there are more women than men in evangelical churches in both countries. And that number just increases um, with age as, as people get older. So the, the pickings are slim. And even within the, the gender ratio and imbalance, there's going to be several men that, you know, aren't to a certain woman's liking or a certain man, you know, there's also people that are closeted gay that are in the church as well. So women start reaching this point, especially I've noticed in the mid thirties, around 34, 35, where the pressure to get married to a man, a Christian man, and the reality of there not being many options and they start feeling almost a despair and a discouragement. Um, And women react to this in very different ways. So this is a a key juncture where a lot of women leave the church or start looking for partners outside of the church. Um, Other women choose to wait and pray and trust and hope that God will bring a partner for them. Um, So there's a lot of different reactions, but this tends to be a big tipping point in the mid-30s for women. Um, And it's also heartbreaking. You know, I've spoke to so many women who desperately want to be married and also feel very marginalized within the church for not being married, and yet they can't meet anybody and they don't know what to do. I wonder if... um... I don't know where I'm going with this, but like the fact that they probably, if they're in that position, they probably have not dated much. They don't necessarily have the social awareness that someone who has dated and met people and gotten to know themselves and what other people are like. I wonder if that makes it all the worse. And then on top of that, I mean, they're approaching the age when having a baby seems less and less possible naturally. Um, So part of me wants to know, like, does that pressure to find this perfect Christian guy, um, does that spur some of these women to make decisions that then violate their own faith? Like, not just meeting outside their Christian circles, but I mean, like, are they more prone to, you know, accept abuse or something because they feel in their minds, like, I gotta just find someone and stick with it no matter what? So a lot of the women actually have had relationships by this point. They've been had had relationships with other Christian men that have lasted for various amounts of time and the relationship didn't work out, you know, as is common with 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 all couples in their 20s. So I don't think they're lacking in any social skills. I think it's just really the deck is stacked against them and it's a numbers game and the numbers just aren't there. And it's unrealistic to expect that you're going to find someone when there are not very many men. And I would say this to women very often, you know, when, when talking about this subject is, you know, statistically there just aren't enough men. And so you're put in an impossible situation where you're expected and you want to marry a Christian man and yet there aren't enough here. So what are you going to do? And I think, 
think women move in and out of that space of thinking, well, God can do miracles. And so something miraculous will happen to this is the accepting the reality for what it is and then making an alternative choice. I haven't seen cases of abuse being more likely in such situation, but I have seen cases where women would choose partners that um, wouldn't be their top pick, let's say, because it was a Christian man and because they wanted to get married and were willing to sacrifice some of their original hopes and desires for a partner. Um, I don't want to use the phrase lower their standards, but (laughs) let's say change their requirements. What has been the effect of so many more stories about Me Too, sexual abuse, certainly in evangelical circles, Southern Baptist circles? Like, those stories are out there. We hear about them more often. Has that changed the way a lot of these women are acting? Does it make them want to leave the church? Does it change how they approach dating at all? I don't think other people's stories on a larger scale, you know, if we're talking about church scandals that have happened, I don't think that has impacted women on an everyday level of causing them to question their church participation. I think women who have had those experiences happen to them, it absolutely causes them to question their involvement. And those can be the smallest of incidences or encounters that they've had with male church members or um, a dating relationship gone awry where it was a a clear case of, of sexism and misogyny and the church took the man's side. Those instances really accumulate for women and and over time cause them to question their participation in the church and to change their participation. So one popular strategy I found is women who would come late to church and leave early. You know, this is a strategy of, I don't want to be super visible. I don't really want to connect with anyone. I still want to be at church, but I've had these incidences happen of sexism and discrimination where I cannot put myself out there as much as I did before. Yikes. Um, Do you watch uh, the YouTubers, people like that, who uh, the Christian women, the influencers who talk about dating and many of them certainly preach like the old school traditional, uh, the rhetoric we're talking about mm-hmm. stay abstinent until marriage. Uh, if you're still single when you're in your thirties or whatever, it's part of God's plan. It's all good. Like it's, it's a little striking to me because they're doing it. Like you're, you're doing it today. It's not a book that's 20 years old and mm-hmm. just hanging around. They're mm-hmm. literally pushing for it today. Like, what do you make of that movement? Cause it's, I'm, I, I don't want to name any one cause it's not just, one channel. There's a whole bunch of them, but there are modern day Christian influencers pushing it. And like, what is your reaction when you see them and you're doing all this research? You're like, this stuff is harmful in so many ways, but like, what do you make of all those channels that are out there? I think a lot of those messages are out of touch as well. I think they had certain resonance and purchase for younger people in their teens, um, especially around sexual abstinence. But applying some of those principles to a woman who's in her 30s or even in her 40s or a woman who's been uh, married and divorced or has lost a partner through death is not relevant anymore and it's not applicable. And it doesn't take into account the reality of 
um, people's sexual desires in their sexual lives. Um, so I think, you know, and often those messages, not always, but often they're also done by married people and people who got married really young in their 20s and so didn't have to contend with dating and sexuality as a 30 or 40 something year old adult who has a very different relationship with their body, understanding of sexuality um, and different place in the world. Um, so I do think they it, there needs to be more nuance around them. And I'm very skeptical of the messages that are kind of no holds barred, anti-sex, anti-thinking about sex, um, and don't have any interrogation or sensitivity to how people experience themselves in different times of life. It is definitely weird to hear some of them offer advice on marriage or sex Mm -hmm. when they've been married for like a year and only have had sex with one person and act like experts, but that is the message they often send. I know or they're in their early twenties, yeah. you know, they're like half the <laughs> age of someone, you know, who's in their forties, who's like, and, and this is something women told me a lot is these messages are not relevant to me, you know, or they, some women, you know, have been told to attend youth events on sexuality. And they're like, this is completely inappropriate. I am a professional in my thirties or forties, and this is not relevant to me. And I'm not going to listen to someone who's 21 who just got married. Tell me about sexuality. There needs to be a more nuanced discussion. Are those opportunities there for them? I mean, I know churches have specific events targeting youth to talk about things like Mm -hmm. sex in a, you know, quote unquote, cool way. But do they have similar type of programs for older people who also may be experiencing that stuff for the first time? Like, is there sex ed for older people in any circles you've seen? There's not. And this is something that, you know, a lot of single people that I speak to who are evangelical find incredibly frustrating is that their sexuality is just not even addressed. It's seen as a non-issue. So the purity messages, you know, are geared towards a much younger audience. Um, And then for their age group, maybe there's a singleness group for like-minded singles to hang out with, but it never talks about sexuality. It doesn't talk about dating and there's, it's seen as a non-issue or it's invisibilized in such a way um, that I think a lot of evangelicals want engagement on this topic and wants an, want a nuanced discussion about it that's age appropriate. What would that look like? I, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but like theoretically, if a big evangelical megachurch, and I only say that because they probably have the capacity to do something like this and the enough people who would attend something like this, like what would they talk about at an age appropriate, not sex education class, but a singleness class? What would that even look like? What would they cover for people who are not in their twenties or younger? Well, I, I guess I'll they? answer. What should they? Yeah, <laughs> I'll answer it based off of what um, people I've spoken to say that they want. So they would want a discussion around what does your sexuality look like when you're not sexually active, but you still have sexual desires. So, you know, in the words of one woman I met, where do I put it, or what do I do with it, with my sexuality and my desires? I think also talking about some of the hard realities around dating that we talked about, you know, this gender imbalances and um, the realities that are being faced by people who have been sexually active before, or maybe believe that having a, a, a healthy sex life is part of a Christian faith and, and entertaining other views as well, rather than coming down on this really black and white hard-lined response. The focus of your book is on women in the church, but I'm really curious, what is the message a lot of these churches deliver to men who are also in their 30s and or beyond 
and single. Like what is, yeah. What are churches telling these men to do and how different is it from what they're uh, teaching the women? So purportedly the messages around dating and sexuality and purity apply to men and women. So there's no teaching that this is female specific. However, in practice, what you'll see is that a lot of the teachings are geared towards a a female audience and that the sort of social pressures around purity fall much heavier on women. So one example is I often, when I visit churches, I'll go into their bookshop and I'll just see what material do they have on sexuality and dating and at their bookshop and what's being advertised. And nine times out of 10, the books are entirely written by a woman and written for a female audience around sexuality and purity. So even though the teaching isn't gender specific on the ground, the way that it plays out in books, in social media influencers, in special events that happen are all geared towards women. Uh, One of the women you spoke to even said something. uh, I'm going to quote this because it was really fascinating. It was such a binary here. She said, that was my other issue with the church. I felt like the church gave me two options. Either you close your legs or you sleep with everyone. The world sleeps with everyone. We don't sleep with anyone, they'd say. And I was wondering, like, whether it's that person specifically or anyone else when they realize they're being lied to like that, like what's the reaction or do they like at some point I would think they got to realize it's not that clear cut. Mm -hmm. I think they do. And this doesn't just apply to single people. You know, there are a lot of married evangelicals who get married young, don't have any form of sex before marriage. And then once they're married, they find that they don't necessarily know what to do sexually within marriage, or it's not fulfilling. It's not all it was cracked up to be because the church gives this promise that if you wait, you will have this mind blowing, fulfilling sex life that will be off the charts. And that's not the reality for a lot of people, especially people that haven't had any sex ed that don't know their bodies or that are still associate their bodies and sex with shame because it's been that association for so long. So those people often feel duped as well. It's not just single women who get to 40 and feel that there's no space for their sexuality. So I think the church really has to rethink and reapproach sexuality for marrieds and unmarrieds. And this sort of easy binaristic promise that if you wait, you'll have this incredible sex and that's it story over is just not appropriate. And it's, it's leaving a lot of people deeply wounded and confused and um, disillusioned. Are church leaders adapting to any of this, especially in the past few years of, as more women, especially Christian women have spoken out about the harm purity culture has caused. And they're very clearly saying, I don't want to leave Christianity. I don't want to leave the church, but this stuff is harmful. I feel like I've heard those voices more often. I have to think pastors, people of influence have heard it too. Are they adapting at all? Are they changing how they approach discussions about sex and abstinence? I think the purity culture itself has toned way down from the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. So the the, the culture around purity is no longer as alive and well as it used to be. The messaging 
around sexuality hasn't changed. So you could say the packaging has changed, but the core of what's inside hasn't. There's still the teaching that you don't have sex before marriage, that you don't think any impure thoughts, that masturbation is wrong, so on and so forth. Those messages are not changing at all. It's just the way that they're being presented and, you know, and it is a positive thing that purity culture doesn't have its hold anymore, especially in the U.S., um, but the messages themselves are still not being nuanced enough and are still not being adapted enough, in my view. How do they change the packaging to still send the same message? Like, how do they talk about abstinence today that is different from, like, wear this ring, sign this pledge, things like that? Some of the analogies that were really in circulation, you know, when I was growing up around, you know, saying, saying to women, you're like a flower. And if you have sex, you're removing your petals. And then when you get married, you're just going to be the stalk and, and, you know, the pollen or whatever else. Or, you know, put two pieces of sticky tape together enough times and it loses its... So all of those really insidious, harmful, misogynistic analogies are no longer being taught from what I can see. Um, however, the, the messaging around, you know, God wants you to be pure before marriage, and this is what purity looks like. You know, it's more coming from an angle of it's a softer approach, you could say. Uh, I don't know if this is a fair question, but I'll ask it anyway. Are evangelical churches a force for good in these women's lives? Like, regardless of what people think about religion itself, you know where I'm coming from on this, but like, I could easily make an argument for why church can be a force for good. But like, it's, I mean, we're obviously talking about harm that they cause, but I mean, a lot of these women are torn. They want to stay in their church. They can't stay in their church. It's bad for them. But like, by and large, if they're leaving these churches, as you write about, I mean, are they better off or... Is it just a matter of, look, if the church just changed some of this stuff, then cool, stay in there if you believe, and it's fine for you. Like, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that specifically. Well, when I was doing my research, I really wanted to write a story that was vindictive, that was anti-church, anti-Christianity. You know, I wanted to burn the whole thing down. I wanted the, the story to be, church is harmful for women, they shouldn't be part of it. And I couldn't write that story. That wasn't the research that I, that wasn't the data that I collected. You know, I spent over five years embedded in these women's lives and I had to acknowledge, you know, as a ethical and honest writer and researcher, the good that church was bringing them as well. And it doesn't make for as neat of a story. It's a lot messier. Um, but that is the truth of what I saw is that especially when it comes to community and connection with other people, the church did a really good job of that for the majority of the women. And that was what kept them there despite so many grievances and wounds and difficulties that they face. Have you come across any uh, Christian women or men who are talking about sex or dating in a way that's actually admirable? Like, who should Christian women, especially women, be listening to these days? Yeah, there are a few. So, you know, I'm a big fan of Nadia Boltzweber. I think that she has a very nuanced and careful consideration of sexuality there you know she's much more on the liberal side of things there are more conservative thinkers of cat harris for example she's written a book on female sexuality as a single woman christian woman she also has a podcast and, and, and is an instagram 
celebrity, so to speak, she also takes a very nuanced perspective, not as liberal as Nadia Boltzweber's, but is still coming at it from a perspective of let's question some of these teachings. Let's interrogate them more. What does it mean to be in your 30s and single? Because these messages that we've got aren't working anymore. So there are women out there that are pushing forward with alternative interpretations and that are getting a lot of traction. They're facing tremendous opposition at the same time. Um, And then you have also a slate of women that are really pushing forward with a pro-LGBTQ message um, as part of their messaging around sexuality. And I think that's really important as well. Is there anything that totally took you by surprise? You said you went in with this idea of what the book was going to be. You ended up going somewhere totally different with it. But like, what else surprised you in your research? Because you're familiar with this world. You already probably knew quite a bit about it going into it. What shocked you? I was surprised at how evangelical women make these minute and sometimes complex accommodations in their lives when living in big cities such as New York and London. So, for example, not attending certain art exhibitions because they're seen as, you know, quote unquote, perverse or listening to some songs by Beyonce, but not others or going to this bar, but not that bar because it has a pole in it. These are such minute and um, detailed accommodations that have to be made and that are being made by women who are in their 30s and 40s and 20s at some times that are working in central parts of the city that are very much immersed in urban secular culture. And yet they're still ascribing to and practicing these very conservative ways of being in the world. And I found that fascinating and um, surprising. You said you grew up uh, a preacher's kid yourself. I'm wondering if the research you've done, the positions you've taken here, what has been your family's reaction or the people close to you who knew you in that culture? What's been their reaction to, to what you've written? Yeah, for me, it was a big sort of exposure writing this book, which was really scary in a lot of ways because I haven't had these super honest conversations with other members of my family. Um, I did share the manuscript with my mom in an early stage, um, and I offered to change anything that was really upsetting to her, you know, out of respect to her. And it took her a while to kind of formulate her thoughts. And in the end, you know, she is has been really supportive of the book um, and really supportive of the story that I'm telling. So it's... Um, yeah, I've been grateful for that. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And so this book is all about women and and struggling with their churches and leaving the churches. What are you researching these days uh, if you're working on another book, a follow-up of sorts? So I've switched gears a bit. I'm no longer looking at gender in evangelicalism. I'm focusing instead on politics. So I did a bit of research in 2016 around evangelicals' reactions to Brexit in the UK. Um, At the same time as I was doing research on evangelicals' reactions to Trump in the US. And sat on that research for about four years. And now I'm following that (laughs) I've done some interviews around the 2020 election, and I'm doing a five-year study now looking at what political issues are most important to evangelicals in the U.S., what issues are they rallying behind, what candidates do they want, um, and how do they see their faith impacting their political influence. So it's it's definitely refreshing for me in a way to to not be focusing on on women's stories of pain and struggle. It was a a really emotional project to do in in a 
difficult book to write in many ways. And this feels like it affords enough distance that I'm not as integral um, to the story. Without giving anything away for that book, um, I mean, I've I've followed what white evangelicals especially have said and done regarding Donald Trump here. I am not as familiar with kind of the religious angle to the Brexit story. Um, is What's the parallels there? So it's direct opposition in the way that evangelicals interpret their faith and vote on things, in, at least when it comes to Brexit and Trump in 2016. So the group of evangelicals that I was interviewing in the UK were anti-Brexit, and that was largely because they viewed their Christian faith as um requiring them to be inclusive and welcoming to immigrants. And Brexit was very much seen as an anti-immigrant policy. In the U.S., on the other hand, the evangelicals I spoke to were voting for Trump because of his immigration policies, and they very much liked the fact that Trump was stricter on immigration, let's say, more restrictive to immigration. So immigration was the key issue for both groups, but the way that they applied their faith to the issue was diametrically opposed, and their political sort of outputs from that was diametrically opposed. That is fascinating. I'm looking forward to reading that one. Uh, Dr. Katie Gadini, her book is The Struggle to Stay, Why Single Evangelical Women Are Leaving the Church. Really fascinating stuff. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time with me today. Thank you very much. Thanks.